Amen. Church, would you remain standing with me as we read Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that's what its name was. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. May be seated. So about six months ago, we were right at a year into our study of Mark. I began to look ahead, just reading through the gospel each day, trying to get a feel for where God was leading us. Where would we be in this gospel at particular parts during the year? What passage would God bring us to on Easter Sunday? Just things like that. And there was one particular portion of this text which just kind of seemed to loom off in the distance. It's created a bit of a pit in my stomach. I came to realize that one Lord's Day soon, I was going to need to stand on this platform and preach to you from the words of Christ out of the beginning of Mark chapter 10. A number of you have looked forward with that same sense of anticipation. I've heard it from you. As you've, your eyes have scanned over your Bibles, you've come, to the, you've come to this heading and you've seen there Jesus teaching about divorce. Or if you read out of the NIV, the heading just reads, divorce. There are very few words in the English, English language which bring such an immediate emotional response. For many of us in this room, divorce. It's like a kick in the gut. Immediately you feel this sense of anger or sadness or regret, maybe even shame and guilt. They all just come flooding to you. You're sitting here this morning thinking, dude, would you preach on anything else in the entire world? Go back to yelling at us about hell, anything other than divorce. But dear friends, that's the beauty and the challenge of preaching verse by verse through entire books of God's word. There's nowhere to hide from the uncomfortable subjects. It forces us to wrestle with the full counsel of God's word, and we praise God because we know that there is beauty and there is power and there is life not just in the portions of Scripture that bring an immediate smile to our face, but even and especially in those which wound us most deeply. Job 5 tells us, Job 5 tells us that God wounds that he may bind up. He crushes that he may heal. Dear friends, I need you to hear me well. It is not my desire this morning to wound you with my words. But it may well be God's desire to wound you with his so that he can heal you up, so that he can bind you up, 
so that it can do a real work in your life. I recognize that for many of us, the refining fire this morning, it's going to burn, and it's going to burn badly. But I plead with you, don't pull back. Don't check out. Don't put up a wall. Don't resist and reject and resent the loving discipline of your heavenly Father. Trust that by the working of his spirit and the power of his word, if you would lean in, if you would just press deeper, that he's going to use this, not just to mold you into the image of his son, but to give you encouragement and hope and joy. Do you hear me? Joy. If you will trust the words of your loving father, no matter the pain that you walked into this place with. Dear ones, you need to know that the word of your father, it breathes life, not just survival, but life, fruitful, meaningful, joyous, abundant life. But we miss out at whenever we pull back because it stings too much. We miss out whenever we refuse to sit under the full weight of what God has to say. And so in light of that, because we're going to spend the next two weeks, at least, we're going to spend the next two weeks in this portion of God's word. And because I so desperately desire for you to engage and hear the word of God in your mind and in your heart and in your soul, I need to make some things clear. Number one, there is absolutely nothing that Jesus has said or I will say which is intended to give you the impression or to encourage you to remain in a place where there is ongoing abuse of any kind. If you or your children or anyone else else charged to your care is not safe, you have an obligation by God to do whatever must be done to get out. You need to know that there's a very real enemy and he will do everything he can to use shame and fear and lies and discouragement to keep you from asking for help. I'm telling you that this church family will move mountains to get and keep you safe. You must speak up. I could care less what role you played in creating whatever mess you're in right now. If you would just raise your hand and ask for help, I promise you we will run with no judgment whatsoever. Number two, You need to know that the only reason Amanda and I are still married to this day is the undeserved grace of Almighty God. There has been no disqualifying sin, but I assure you that we, just like every single one of you, we are sinful and selfish and fallen people, just doing the best we can to honor God and our commitments to Him and to each other while we pray every single day that our children would see more of Christ and less of us. Our sin began on a basis of sin. Please don't believe that I believe or that I'm trying to encourage you to believe that we have gotten any or all of this right. At the very beginning, the very foundation of our marriage, I completely disregarded any care for what God's word had to say. As a believer, a professing believer, I've told you before, I'm not all that sure that I was actually saved. But as a man that called himself a believer, I knew what God's word had to say about being unequally yoked. And I gave zero thought and even less prayer to what God would have me to do in my marriage. What I knew was she was pretty and she was sweet and she let me kiss her. And that was enough. And yet by the work of the Almighty God, by his unmitigated grace, as we turned and we repented and we confessed, God not only saved my wife, He redeemed my marriage, and he has blessed us beyond anything we could ever imagine. I can't speak for her. Some days I'm sure it doesn't feel like much of a blessing. 
But I've been blessed beyond anything I could ever imagine. Dear friends, God redeems marriages and he can redeem yours. No matter how deep the wounds, no matter how far the separation, no matter how heavy the sins. And thirdly, I need you to know that no matter how badly you have heard so many other preachers abuse this morning's text, you need to know that divorce is not the unforgivable sin. It's the Apostle John who said that if we will confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It was that same Apostle John who in his gospel tells us about the encounter between Jesus Christ and a Samaritan woman, a woman that had been married five times and divorced five times and was now living with a man that was not her husband. And because of her encounter with the living God, because he invited her to drink deeply from the living waters, she was not only forgiven and saved, she was used in a mighty way for the kingdom of God. The scriptures tell us that many Samaritans came to believe in Jesus Christ because of the testimony of this five times divorced woman. Dear friends, God is not done with you. He has not thrown you away. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin. So that if as a result of this morning's text, as a result of something God says to you this morning, you become aware of some unconfessed sin in your life, if you would turn and repent, Truly trust in Jesus Christ and him alone. Dear friends, watch as he brings forth beauty from ashes. Watch what he will make of your life if you will truly turn and trust in him. So with that, I ask you to stand to your feet, please. Reverence, we're reading of God's word as we return to Mark's gospel, chapter 10. This is the word of God. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. All God's people said, amen. Maybe see that. Father God, we need grace. At all times, we need grace. Father, I pray that my words this morning would be seasoned with love and grace. I pray that hearts would be bound up. But more than anything, Father, I pray that your truth would be received and that you would be glorified. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen. It began like this. And he left there. You'll recall that Jesus and the twelve, they had departed from Galilee and they headed north up into the region of Caesarea Philippi. It was there where Jesus ascended the mountain. There at the top, he pulled back the flesh. He the veil of his flesh revealed his glory to Peter, James, and John. Showed them the glory that had always been his. And then upon coming back down the mountain, they were reunited with the rest of the group. And then they made one last pass around the lake, 
around the Sea of Galilee before heading south into Jerusalem for that final time. This would have been fall, perhaps early summer of the year 29 A.D., about six months out before the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. There along the way, they stopped in a house, probably the house of Peter, where Jesus taught the men all that we have just spent the last month studying out of the last half of Mark chapter 9. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. As you know, in Jesus' day, Israel was very broadly divided into three sections. You had there in the north, the more rough, the more rural, the rest, less religious area of Galilee. This was a place where you had a number of Jewish towns in very close proximity to larger pagan cities. This was a very mixed population. In the south, you had Judea, the religious center, much more refined. This is the place where Jerusalem and the temple and most of the religious leaders were. But then in the middle, you had Samaria. This was a place filled with people whose ancestors had married outsiders. Their religion was impure. It was not proper. They were truly looked down upon by the majority of the Jewish people. And so, oftentimes, whenever Galileans would head north into Judea, or Judeans would, strike that, reverse it, whenever Galileans would head south into Judea, or Judeans would head north into Galilee, oftentimes, rather than taking the most direct route through Samaria, like Jesus did when he met the Samaritan woman at the well, but rather than taking that more direct route, oftentimes, in order to not engage with the Samaritan people, they would either go around the Sea of Galilee or perhaps cross the Jordan River and go down that eastern side. This was the area called Judea beyond the Jordan. This was the area that's also called Perea. That means the country beyond. It's often called Perea. This was the place where Jesus would spend much of the remaining six months of his life leading up to Passion Week. As a matter of fact, we find in Luke's gospel, he takes nearly seven chapters to record for us everything that Jesus taught during this time. But Mark, as was his pattern, he's much quicker. He's, he's moving us very rapidly. Mark is moving us towards that final week of Jesus' life. And so as a result of this, we see that he only uses one chapter, a portion of one chapter, to record for us everything that happens there. So it says, and he left there, and he went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and the crowds gathered to him again. So what would have happened here is the men would have gone either around the Sea of Galilee, they would have perhaps crossed the Jordan River, they would have come down the eastern side, and then eventually they would have crossed right back over at Jericho, crossing the Jordan River at Jericho before heading north, upwards into Jerusalem. The crowds gathered to him, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. As was Jesus' custom, he taught them. Matthew tells us that he also healed. But you'll remember that the healings, the feedings, the miracles, they were all, these were all to provide evidence, proof of who Jesus was and of his testimony. You'll remember that early on in Mark's gospel, after Jesus had healed just a massive crowd, early one morning as he was alone with his father, his disciples came to him saying, everyone is looking for you, Jesus. What are you doing here? And he told them, this is why I came out. Let us go to other towns that I may preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. This was Jesus' purpose. Verse 2. And the Pharisees came to him in order to test him, and they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, this is nothing new. Everywhere that Jesus went, these Pharisees were there testing. They didn't desire to learn from him. They had no desire to follow after Jesus. They wanted to trap him. They wanted to trick him. They wanted to perhaps shame him to prove that there was some sin in this man that claimed to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so they were there, and they asked this question. Now, we're going to cover the subject of divorce in much greater detail next week. We're going to talk about how divorce was viewed, viewed amongst first century Jewish people. But I will assure you this morning that these men knew very well that divorce was legal, as did Jesus. Divorce was every bit 
as prevalent amongst the first century Jewish people as it is today. So the question wasn't really, is divorce legal? The question is, under what circumstances is divorce legal? That's why in Matthew's parallel, in Matthew chapter 19, you'll read this. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, there were two major schools of thought amongst the Jewish people with regards to divorce, and it really centered on Deuteronomy chapter 24. In short, what Moses speaks of there is a man who, because, he, because his wife does not find favor in his eyes, because he finds some indecency in her, he gets a divorce. Now, there were people that they followed one of the major rabbis in that time. He was named Shammai. Now, Shammai was the much more conservative of the rabbis. Shammai took this word indecency, that the man would find indecency in his wife. He understood indecency to only refer to specific sexual sin. And so Rabbi Shammai, what he taught was that divorce was only legal in instances of adultery. Now, there was another rabbi. This rabbi was called Hillel. He was the more liberal of the rabbis. He understood indecency with very different terms. Number one, he seemed to focus in on the fact that the woman had not found favor in her husband's eyes. So as a result, he took this word indecency and he broadened it. He understood indecency to be anything that displeased the man. So according to the teaching of Rabbi Hillel, a man could divorce his wife if she burnt his supper. A man could divorce his wife if she accidentally showed another man her ankle. A man could divorce his wife if he found somebody prettier. Not a whole lot unlike that so, the so-called no-fault divorces of today. Now, I'll give, you a, I'll give you a guess which rabbi found more favor in the eyes of the general populace. As a matter of fact, we know that one of the most well-known rabbis of that time, Gamaliel, you've probably heard of Gamaliel, he's referenced in the scripture, but you know that Rabbi Gamaliel, he was one of the leading authorities among the Sanhedrin. He was the grandson of this man called Hillel. So what the Pharisees were attempting to do was they were attempting to trap Jesus. Now, we don't know exactly what they hoped he would say here. Perhaps, did they believe that because Jesus was from the less religious area of Galilee? Did they believe that because Jesus had this reputation of hanging out with sinners and tax collectors, that perhaps his understanding of the Scripture, of what it meant to have a legal divorce, was much broader than even that of Moses? And perhaps they could show him to be a sinner? They could show him to be in conflict with the law, and maybe they could alienate him from the more conservative portions of the Jewish population? Or, and I believe this is more likely, or perhaps... Did they hope that it would be more restrictive? That he would have a much more restrictive view on what, what constituted a legal divorce and that he could then put him contrary to the rest of the population, those that wanted divorce on demand. In addition to that, you've got to remember that this region called Perea, this was one of the regions that was under the control of uh, Herod Antipas. You'll remember Herod Antipas is the one that divorced his wife so that he could marry his brother's wife, Herodias. You'll remember that John the Baptist had spoken out against this. That's how he ended up in jail and getting his head lopped off. So it's very, very likely that these Pharisees hoped that Jesus would make a similar statement, and as a result of this similar statement, he would meet a similar punishment. But Jesus answered them, verse 3, What did Moses command you? See, Jesus wasn't going to play along. As was his custom, he answered a question with a question. He puts them back on their heels. He makes them think, and he asks them, what did, G, what, what did Moses command you? Now, you'll notice that he doesn't make reference to any of the rabbis. He doesn't say, well, what's your chosen interpretation? Which of these men have you chosen to follow? No, he pushes them back up against God's word. Because, of course, he's not asking them, what did Moses the man say? He's asking, what has God said through Moses? 
These people as men who knew and loved the law, he puts them on their own playing field. He takes them to their playing field and he asks them, what did Moses command? Verse 4, and they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Did you see what they did there? It was very subtle. Very subtle. The answer was correct. What Jesus asks is, what did Moses command? Their response, Moses allowed Moses allowed us to write a certificate of divorce. Turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 24, please. Deuteronomy 24. That's really the text in question here. That's really the basis for the argument and what these Pharisees were asking Jesus about. So if you look here in Deuteronomy 24, of course, of course Moses is giving the law a second time. That's what Deuteronomy means. It means a repetition or a second giving of the law as God was using this man to prepare this second generation before they entered into the promised land and he was teaching them all that God had commanded. Have you found it? Okay. So Moses asks, Jesus asks, what did Moses command? I'm going to read it and I want you to try to answer that question. What is the commandment here? Are you ready? When a man takes a wife and marries her, if... She finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. Verse 2. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the later man dies who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For this is an abomination before the Lord and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance what was the command let me give you a hint commands either begin with thou shall or thou shalt not or in this case you may not you see the command that God was giving through Moses here is it was with regards to what a man shall not do if he has married a woman and if that woman is found in decency in his eyes, and if he chooses to write her a certificate of divorce and send her out, and if that woman finds another husband, and if that other husband dies or writes her a certificate of divorce, if all of these things happen, then the man shall not take her back because she has been defiled by laying with this other man. That's the command. This is not a command for divorce. That's what a lot of men took this to mean. There were a lot of people in Jesus' day that taught that if a man finds indecency in his wife, thou shall, thou must get a divorce. But that's not what Jesus has said. He has said, if you find some indecency in your wife and you choose to send her away, you better be sure about it because you can't take her back once she's remarried. What God was doing here, he was making an allowance for divorce, yes. You'll notice that what God did not say, this is not one of the Ten Commandments, thou shall not get a divorce. He was, in fact, making an allowance for divorce, but he certainly wasn't commanding it. This command was with regards to his desire to restrict the evil that comes as a result of divorce. To restrict the evil, the sin, the hurt that comes as a result by setting these parameters around divorce, by setting these restrictions around divorce. This is why the Pharisees were right in saying to Jesus, yes, that Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce. Verse 5, and Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this command. Jesus said, you already know your Bibles. And if you know what my father has said throughout many of the prophets, but specifically in Malachi 2, you know what my father has said, and you know that he hates divorce. And yet he has merely written this law because of you hard-hearted people, because you were a sinful and adulterous and unfaithful people. You are unfaithful to your God and you're unfaithful to the wife of your youth. 
And because of this, because you are so very unfaithful, because you are so hardened in your heart, so unwilling to extend grace and mercy and forgiveness, God has written this command to limit the destruction that you in your hardened hearts can bring upon your life, your family's life, and your nation. That's what he's done here. But Jesus goes on. Verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, this is so good. Dear friends, you have no idea how good this is. But from the beginning of creation, Jesus is telling the Pharisees, you're asking the wrong question. You're beginning from a place. You're beginning from a place of restriction and exceptions and laws and outs and how to break this thing from sin and divorce and law. You're beginning from a place of brokenness, but that's not how it was in the beginning. In the beginning, before there was sin, before there was selfishness, before there was need of any of these things, God's perfect plan was not this. This is not what God designed. God designed something perfect and pure and permanent. In the beginning, this was God's plan. You're asking the wrong question. Don't you see? Jesus takes them first to the law. First he takes them to Moses because that's what they understood. He knew what was behind their question. That was the language they spoke. That was their playing field. So he takes them there because that's where their hearts were going anyway. And in addition to that, to show them that the same God that gave the law through Moses, he is the same God of creation. He has not changed. His purposes, his plans, his desires, his movement of all creation towards redemption, it has not changed. But then he takes them further. He carries them all the way back. Beyond the civil law of Moses, beyond that, the allowances that God has made because of the hardened hearts of men, he takes them all the way back to the beginning. He says, you guys should be looking here. <clears throat> he says, you guys should be looking here. Don't you dare ask how to dissolve your marriage until you first ask what is God's good and perfect desire for every marriage. Don't look around at the brokenness in your marriage. Don't look around at the sin in your marriage. Don't look around at the indecency in your wife until you go all the way back to the beginning and you say, what was God's good and perfect and holy and pleasing and joy-filled plan for my marriage? Dear friends, how much better would your life be? How much holier? How much happier? How much better would your life be if you were to ask this question? Not just about marriage, about everything. About absolutely everything. But we don't dare do that. Because nobody's perfect, right? Except Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Look to his perfect standard. Look to his perfect and holy and unbreakable standard. Will you fall short? Of course, you're a sinner. But we don't even bother looking to his standard any longer. We just look at all the brokenness around us and go, well, I'm better than that guy at least. We grade on a curve. He's saying, no, look to your perfect Father. Look at his design. This thing which was meant to bring joy and peace and happiness and fulfillment. You've got to go all the way back to the beginning. We don't grade based on the broken standard of this world. We don't judge based on the fluctuating scale of men. We don't even stop at God's allowance, the allowances that he has made because of the hardness of your heart. You go all the way back to the beginning. You say, God, as the creator of the universe, as the giver of everything that is good, what is your desire for my life and for my marriage? That's the question you must ask. Christian, if every single one of us asks that question, and then if we pursued whatever God revealed with reckless abandon, marriages all over this church would be healed. Divorce wouldn't even be a thing anymore. You'd be so consumed by what God has shown you. And so before we spend too much time, as I said, we'll cover divorce at greater length next week. Don't skip, please. 
before we cover divorce at greater length next week, we need to ask. Before we look at God's tolerance for divorce, before we look at his provision for our broken hearts, hardened hearts, we need to look. What is his perfect standard? And I want you to know that I've prayed with everything that is in me this week. I wrestled hard with this text. I wrestle hard every week, but this one kicked my fanny. And I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed that God would use our time this gather, the time together this morning to restore marriages all throughout this room. But if there are any of you in this room that are contemplating divorce, perhaps you are pursuing a divorce, that God would draw your eyes back to this. And dear friends, I need you to know I'm not fixing to turn into a Hallmark card. I'm not going to play on your emotions. I'm going to call you to obedience. It's that as a result of this call that you would hear not the word of a pastor, but the word of your living God. And as his sheep, you would hear and you would obey and you would be changed. That your hearts would be softened and that your marriages would be restored. If you're somebody that is single and you've got that burning desire within your heart to be married, number one, I pray that you would not be ashamed of that. God has given you that desire and only God can meet that desire. But I pray that you would see such a picture of who God has designed you as a husband or a wife to be and what God has designed marriage to be that you would refuse to settle for anything less. Do you hear me, students? That you would not settle for anything less. And if you are someone that is single and perfectly content, if God has given you the gift of singleness, I pray that God would use this to show you how you can offer good, solid, biblical counsel to your married friends or to your children. So he says, verse 6, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. So Jesus quotes here two separate portions of the creation story. I hope you're still in the Old Testament. You might flip over. One of those is in Genesis 1.27. The other is in Genesis 2.24. And so Genesis 1.27 goes like this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. In the beginning, God created them, male and female. This absolutely destroys any of this nonsense about gender fluidity or any of the other word games that the world wants to play. And frankly, I'm a smart guy. I can't really follow all the arguments. Dear friends, this blows that out of the water. In the beginning, God made them male and female. This is not a sliding scale. There's not a third or fourth or fifth or tenth option. In the beginning, God made them male and female. It also leaves absolutely no room for polygamy or homosexuality. God's perfect plan for sexual relations is within the confines of marriage, and his design for marriage is one man and one woman. There's not room for anybody else or any other combination of the two. This is God's perfect design. Anything less falls short. Male and female, he created them. He created them in a unique way for very specific purposes. as a completion, a complement to one another. They could come together and achieve that which couldn't otherwise be accomplished. God made them both in his image, both valued and cherished. Same souls, yet different bodies for different tasks. The man created to provide and to protect and to lead his wife. The woman is the weaker vessel, as, as Peter calls it. Not lesser, not inferior, not less valued, not less, not less cherished. Built for a different purpose. Physically softer and weaker. Specifically made to carry and nurture and care for and do that which the man cannot do. That's what he's created us for. We praise God for those differences. We don't reject them. We don't deny them. We celebrate them. 
Men, think about it. Are you not most interested in? Are you not most attracted to the parts of your wife that are the least like you? It's God's plan from the beginning. He was bringing us together in this way. He made them male and female. The differences don't just stop at physical. There are other differences as well, but none of them, none of them, none of them indicate anything on the level of less valuable, less cherished, less honored, of less use in the kingdom of God. Then Jesus moves on to Genesis chapter 2. We read there that God created Adam out of the dust. Now, I generally, whenever I'm sharing the gospel, specifically when I'm sharing the gospel with children, but whenever I'm sharing the gospel, I generally try to go all the way back to this creation story and the God who breathes stars, and he made mountains, and he made elephants, and he made lions, and he made oceans, and then he leans down with his hands, and he makes the man out of dust as he breathes in and life, spirit into the man. And then he takes the man, and he puts him in the Garden of Eden. Then we read here in Genesis 2.18, Then the Lord said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make for him a helper fit for him. We wonder why some, we get some of these orderings, right? We read through the letters of the New Testament, and we hear about wives submitting to their husbands. We hear about specific leadership roles that are reserved for men. And we wonder if this is just some New Testament thing that's been created. This is something that was a particular um, picadillo of, of, of Paul or perhaps of Peter. And yet we go all the way back to the beginning, and we find here Adam was already doing what God had called him to do there in the garden naming the animals, tending the garden, do all the, doing all those things, and yet then he created from him this woman to be a helper. And yet there's an incredible interdependence there. Out of Adam came this woman. God created the woman from Adam for Adam, and yet today there's not a man alive that did not come forth from the womb of a woman. Do you see this? The beauty of what God has done, and yet he created this woman as a, as a helper for him. But you need to notice something here. Adam did not ask for a helper. Adam didn't raise his hand and say, God, you did real good, but I could use some help down here. God, you did real good, but why don't you create for me a woman? As a matter of fact, I anticipate that perhaps what happened was God said, it is not good that man should be alone. Let us create a helper for him. And he said, what do you mean alone, God? I'm not alone. I'm here with you. You see, he didn't understand loneliness. He couldn't possibly understand loneliness. God implanted within Adam a need and then immediately met that need. Do you see this? This is what God does. He puts within you a need, a desire, and then only he can meet it. He puts that fire within you that only he can tend to. This is absolutely critical. You need to understand that this was not a concession. This was not something that came after the fall. Everything was good and right and perfect in all the world, and God looked down and said, I'm going to create in this man a desire for companionship, for union, for a helper, and then I'm going to provide that helper for him. And man didn't do a thing to make it happen. He slept the entire time. That's what David read to us earlier, Genesis 2, 21 through 22. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs, and he closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made it into a woman and brought her to the man. Man didn't invent marriage. He wasn't even awake. Isn't that the way this works? All good things happen while dad snoozes on the couch. He was not even awake as God did this thing. And we would dare look to God and tell him, now we're going to define marriage. Now we're going to go to our stupid friends and listen to their counsel about how to fix my marriage. I'm going to go to secular counselors and allow them to give me guidance about how to deal with my marriage. Rejecting the one that created it. 
the one that created it and gave it to us as a gift. Don't miss this. Your marriage, every single marriage, it belongs to God because God created it. That's why it says here, what God has joined together. It does not matter if neither you nor your spouse are a believer. It does not matter if you're married by a priest or a pastor or a Buddhist monk. Every single marriage that ever was, it belongs to God. And just like everything else in the universe that belongs to God, it exists for his glory. Dear friends, I'm afraid we've completely lost sight of how sacred, how holy, how precious, how cherished marriage is to the living God. And as a result of this, we have completely lost sight of how hot his fire burns against those who would seek to alter or to destroy it. Your marriage belongs to God, and he loves it. He cherishes it, and it exists for the sake of his glory. But praise God that he's defined it for us. He doesn't just leave us to stumble and figure out what's this thing all about. He gives a very clear plan right here in the beginning. Go back to chapter 1. He gives a very clear design, a very clear pattern, a very clear purpose for why he's created marriage. He says here, Genesis 1.28, God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God didn't just create man and woman. He created them in his image, and they created, then commanded them to have babies. Lots of babies. Be fruitful and multiply. Why? To fill the earth and to subdue it. To have dominion over every little thing that moves on the earth. This was the primary purpose. This was the first and primary purpose for marriage. That men and women, created in the image of Almighty God, would come together to the glory of God. That they would come together in the unique ways that he has created them. That they would come together. And from that union would come forth a bunch of little image bearers that those little image bearers would then go out and glorify God as they exercise his authority, his dominion, as they subdue all the rest of creation, that they would fill the earth with the image of God to subdue and have dominion and to represent God. Do you see this? That was God's purpose in marriage, that this world would be filled with a bunch of little stewards, a bunch of little God-image-bearing stewards that would go and exercise his dominion and his control and his authority over everything that is. This is the first and primary purpose of marriage, and that is not what Hollywood would tell you. Now, there are plenty of cultures out there that understand that one of the primary purposes of marriage is to procreate, is to bring forth babies, but it's all man-centered. It's all about having plenty of help in the field. It's all about having plenty of children that can care for you when you're old, although that is a blessing. That is a blessing that God has allowed us to enjoy. Even in this country, there are many of us that want lots and lots and lots of babies, but it's to build a monument to self. And so there'll be a lot of little kids running around there representing you. That's what we do, right? People post pictures on Facebook. Look at this. This is my mini-me. Dear friends, it's only good if she's a mini-me to the degree that you look like Christ. That must be your primary goal. That you, you make certain that your children, whether these children carry your DNA or not, whether they're your biological children whether you're foster children, your adopted children, just some random kid in the neighborhood that ended up in your house, that whatever children God has entrusted to you, that you spend every last ounce of effort seeking to glorify God as you teach these children to know and love and represent God and all the rest of his creation. This is the work of a mother and a father. That's why God brought them together in this way. There's something about that union that can only be represented when it is whole. Paul talks to us. He paints this picture for us in Ephesians 5. By the way, I think that's where God's taking us next. 
when we finish the, the book of Mark, whenever that may be, we will go into, I believe, God's leading us into Ephesians. So we'll cover this at more length then. But in Ephesians 5, Paul makes clear to us that the picture here is one of Christ and his church. And we paint that picture not only for our children, but for the world as we are together. Wife humbly submitting in complete trust that her husband has her best desire at heart. Father representing Christ, husband representing Christ, willing to lay down his life, willing to lead, willing to wash his wife pure with the word, willing to present to himself a pure and holy bride, sanctify her by the teaching of the word, as together they come and they train these children up. They show these children who God is. They send them out into the world that they could represent him. Don't you see? It's not just about making babies. It's about molding these babies in the image of the almighty God. This requires intentionality. It requires effort. It requires sacrifice. It requires discipleship. That's what this entire section of Mark chapter 10, that's what it's all about. Jesus is making sure these men understand what does discipleship look like. And discipleship begins in the home. As you train these children to look like Jesus Christ and to go out in the world, as you yourself look like Jesus Christ, as your wife represents the bride. Do you see this? This is about so much more than you. Your marriage is not about your happiness. The marriage is not about your needs. The marriage is not about whether or not you feel like staying in that house. You're painting to the world a picture of the Almighty God, and you're filling the ends of the earth with little image bearers. Are you beginning to feel the weight? You're beginning to feel the weight of this thing which the world tells you that you can run off to Vegas and do in a drunken weekend? That the world tells you you can just stop because it doesn't feel right anymore? Are you beginning to feel the weight? Your marriage comes from points back to and belongs to the Almighty God. Don't you dare seek to destroy it until you have looked to him and said, God, what would you have me to do? This is yours. This woman is yours. This marriage is yours. These children are yours. We're meant to represent you to the world, and we don't want to mess it up, and we know we will. I began to feel the weight this week as I studied this. Guys, I think I'm going to go long today. I don't know what to tell you. But as we... As, as, I began to feel the weight this week as a man with three little girls. We don't do a lot of weddings in this church, and, and I get that, right? We, it has something to do with what our population was like versus what it is like we're bringing more young people into this church. And so I know we don't have a middle aisle. People like to have a middle aisle. We can create one for you probably with some plywood or something. You can crawl down the middle aisle. But God has impressed upon my heart. Students, please listen to me. Young people, please listen to me. If God would call you to marriage and then join you together with a mate, would you please allow this entire church to join you in that? I'm not looking for private ceremonies. I'm not talking about big. You don't got to spend 10 grand on a dress. We will come alongside you. Listen to me. First Baptist Church of Crosby, we will come alongside you and we will celebrate your God-focused marriage like you could not believe. We will pack this place as we celebrate what God is doing. If you feel the weight of what he is doing, if you'll put him in the center of what he is doing. God's ferociously protective of this. And until we see this, we cannot get it right. We will always fall short, and we will always find ourselves destined for failure and discontentment. We will always find ourselves falling for the lies of the enemy that our marriage is all about us and all our needs. We will always be susceptible to our own emotions. We'll always be likely to just get bored and to walk away until we see the purpose, the picture, the, the very design for God, his perfect design from the beginning in marriage. And then as soon as we're no longer happy, we'll pack up our stuff and we'll go away. And dear friends, you've got too many people out there in this world that are all too happy to support you in that, to tell you what a scumbag your husband is, 
what a lazy wife you have and how you need to pack up and leave. Dear friends, God would not have it that way. It was not his design from the beginning. And here's the mystery in God's kingdom. The more you focus on God, the more you focus on his glory, the more you focus on his pattern and his way, the happier you are. The world's way always comes up empty. It always leaves you lacking. It always leaves you discontent. You're always chasing after more. You're filling your belly with cotton candy. It might taste good in the moment, but at the end it's going to make you sick. But God offers you something deep and real and meaningful when we seek his pattern. It's only then that we can truly be blessed and watch as Adam is blessed as he wakes up from his nap and he recognizes what God has done. He wakes up and he sees the gift that God has given him, this first song of thanksgiving and of praise. He can hardly contain himself. This at last. Our girls are so scared I'm going to sing right now. Do you hear the violins coming in as Etta James starts singing? At last. But he was on fire. At last. This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Because she was taken out of man. Can you even imagine this? At last, I didn't even know how badly I wanted her. And there she is. There she is. You made her for me. The animals are cool. But if you hadn't shown up, God, I guess I would have married a monkey. God, I praise you that you have created this woman for me. She is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh and yet different. And I love the parts that are different. This is exactly what I needed. And I had no clue until you put the desire in me. And then you put the woman right here in front of me. And for Adam, once he saw this woman, there was no other woman in the entire world. Literally. <laughs> but that's the way it is supposed to be. Dear ones, if God has called you to marriage, he has created the woman for you. And I understand I keep speaking from the man's perspective because I are one. That's all I know, right? He's created the one for you, the only woman in the whole wide world, what God has joined together. Christian, if he has called you to marriage, he has created one for you, and you must turn to him and to him alone. Students, your parents have been given to you by God to help you in this thing. You must go to him. You must trust in him that he has got one for you. I told you that the way I picked a wife, it was completely wrong. You cannot pick your wife based on somebody that you think is pretty, based on somebody that you have fun with, based on somebody that makes you happy. Now, I'm not saying that you go get an ugly girl that is mean and makes you miserable. Those are all just bonuses. Those are all just extras. It cannot be your primary focus in this thing. The question must be, is this the one that God built for me? And Christians, I can promise you, he didn't build her for you if she's not a believer. She cannot represent the church if she's not a believer. See, marriages all over this church that have been destroyed as a result of this. I told you, God saved my marriage. I don't know why he did it. I didn't deserve it. Amanda didn't deserve it. But you've got to ask yourself, is this the one that God has got for me? Because you know those other things are going to fade away. People age. Time is hard on a body. Life gets hard. Things that made you happy today are going to annoy you tomorrow. You can't get caught up in these things and your emotions and your personal needs. You've got to say, God, is this the one that you have designed for me? And then as soon as you know she's the one, you don't go shopping around. You will not find anywhere in Scripture that God has commanded you to date around. You don't mess around, and you don't live together to try to figure out whether this thing is going to work. 
Courtship is for one purpose and one purpose only, to figure out, is this the one that God has built for me? And then once you know, you move without haste. You move without delay. Dear friends, if you can be in the room with one that you believe God has built from you and you're not thinking we need to get married because some bad things are going to happen, maybe she ain't the one. Therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Pastors, they refer to this as leave and cleave. You've heard that, right? Nod your heads. Everybody's heard this picture of leaving in marriage. The man and the woman, they leave their father and their mother, the two people on this planet they are closest with. The two people on this planet that they have a biological union with. They sever that connection, not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually. They break it at this point. Man, you need to understand, if you are not ready, if you're not ready to protect, to provide for, to spiritually and emotionally and physically lead your wife and any children that come from that union, you're not ready to even think about courting a woman or a girl. But once you are, once you have determined that it is time for you to move forward into marriage, it is at that point, once God has revealed who she is to you, that you break this, that you leave your father and your mother. That's where so many marriages go, go wrong. They refuse to do this. They refuse to grow up. They refuse to move on. Listen, Amanda and I, I pray to God that we are active, involved grandparents. I pray to God that we would be those type of parents that go to every ball game, every ballet recital, that we would be those people that that just love our grandchildren and spend time weekly, daily with our grandchildren. I pray that God blesses us with the resources to just spoil our grandchildren. But with regards to our daughter's marriage, there is no place for us there. I haven't cried I'm not a crier. You know I'm not a crier. I think the wedding day might be it. As you see this picture, it's the perfect picture you see of the father coming down the aisle and handing off the hand of his daughter. And he says, son, you listen to me. I have laid down my life. I've done everything in my power to provide for and protect and care for, and shepherd, and lead, and sanctify by the washing of the word this little girl, that she would arrive to this moment pure, and white, and clean. If you're not ready to do those very same things, don't take your hand. Don't reach out your hand and take it, unless you're willing to lay down your life. Your needs must come last. Man, you are not ready for marriage if you're not ready to be the one that's cold, that's hungry, that's sleepy, that's tired, that's worn out, that's working three jobs, that's doing whatever must be done to provide and protect and care for and die if that's what it takes to take care of that woman that God has created for you. And women, as he hands you off to that man, you don't look to daddy anymore for those things. But in just the way that you submitted and you honored and you respected and you obeyed your father, you now look to this man in that same way. I know how contrary that is to the ways of this world. Women's rights. Women have been liberated. And we completely break the pattern that God has. Destroys marriages. We'll talk more about that next week. But you don't look to your father and your mother anymore for this. Neither one of you. You don't go running to mommy and daddy every time you have a fight. You don't go looking to mommy and daddy for your spiritual leadership. You don't go looking to mommy and daddy to make all the decisions that must be made in your house. Listen, do you still honor and respect your mom and your dad? Yes. Do you care for them as they get older? Yes. 
Are there circumstances where leaving may not mean physically leaving? Well, you welcome your grown parents into your house? Look, there's cultures in this world. I don't think it's dishonoring to Christ, these cultures in this world where you move in with your parents. I don't know that this has to be a physical leaving. The question, though, is am I following Christ's pattern? Am I following the pattern that God has given me where I'm separated from this union and now I'm with this woman? And this woman is with me. And there's no room for anybody else. You see, this isn't just a picture of severing ties with your father and your mother. It is severing ties with anyone and anything which would come between you and your wife. Again, this is a picture of Christ and his church. The day that you came to see Jesus Christ as truly glorious, you forsake everything else. You let loose of anything else which would become between you and them, anything else which would hold you back, anything else which would cause harm, anything else which would cause to separate. You let go of all of it, your friends, your hobbies, your drinking, your Internet usage, your video games. Men, grow up. There's some things that you're going to have to let loose of. If your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. If your boys cause you to sin, cut them out. Your life must change. You're no longer attached to these other things, not even your father and your mother. And, if he, and he must hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so that they are no longer two, but one flesh. They come together. Of course, this speaks to the physical union of the coming together. We see here in the passage we read that the two were naked and they were not ashamed. And of course, there's this physical coming together. Procreation, that's where the babies come from. And dear friends, I don't have time to fully unpack this, but there are deep, deep implications for the things you do before marriage with regards to the coming together as one flesh. Every time you come together physically in any way, you are becoming one flesh. I will tell you that my standard for my daughters, and they're young, so I'm not telling you that I can hold them to this. I'm telling you that my standard for my daughters is that they will not kiss a man until their wedding day. I pray by the strength of Almighty God that they would obey. There's something lost when we come together as one flesh in any way. Mentally, to look at a woman with lust is to commit adultery. That we would so guard that oneness of our flesh. Saving yourself, knowing that every single woman, little boys, I need you to hear me, every single girl in this room, particularly those that are believers, she is your sister. Don't do anything with her you would not do with your biological sister. Someday she may be somebody else's wife. Don't do anything with her you would not do with someone else's wife. But there's more than that. It's the coming together emotionally and spiritually, being of one accord and of one mind and of one spirit and just letting loose of all these other connections and coming together so much so that the world can't tell where one of you ends and the other one begins. No separation whatsoever, this oneness that comes, caring for one another. No one has ever hated his own body. This love that you would have for one another, putting the needs of the other first, again, as the husband, as the leader, being willing to lay down your life for the sake of your wife, and again, so many couples, they don't strive for this. They don't even make this their goal. They want to put one foot, they want to become one flesh with the woman, but it's only in the physical regard. They want to hold everything else back. They don't want to stand naked and transparent and exposed because that's scary. They don't want to give themselves completely over to their wife because that's scary. Or perhaps because they've given it away way too many times and they've got way too many scars. But it doesn't work when you don't come together completely and totally. There are no secrets in marriage. Do you hear me? 
No secrets. And then Jesus goes on to say, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. It's not yours to separate. Your marriage belongs to God. You have no right to destroy it, to tear it apart, not even your own. And you want to know why divorce hurts so bad? You don't know why to many degrees divorce is worse than death? Because it's the tearing apart of that which God has brought together. I've talked to you time and time and time again about the reality of death. As God leaned down into this dirt man and he breathed life, he took together spirit and soul and life and, 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 and flesh, and he joined them together into one thing, that death is the ripping apart of that. The death is your soul headed to heaven or to hell while your body goes into the ground. That's what makes death so, fear, uh, so terrifying, so painful. The same thing with divorce is that oneness, that coming together as one flesh that God has joined together and that it's ripping it apart. That's why it hurts. That's why it stings. Many times worse so than death. Dear friends, I've, I've got to wrap this up now. I apologize that we've gone over, but oh, how I pray. Oh, how I pray. If you find yourself in this room in the middle of a marriage that just is not working, that is, is not meeting your needs, it just is not leaving you happy, that you would completely and totally abandon the fairy tale lie about what marriage is meant to be, and you would look to your heavenly Father, that you would repent of whatever sin you have committed, that you would extend forgiveness wherever it is needed, and that you would trust in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone to heal what has been broken. I promise you, I promise you, I promise you he can. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for the beauty and the hope and the joy that is found in your word. We thank you, Father, for the good gift. That very first institution, before the church, before the government, you gave us the family, the very foundation of discipleship, the very foundational relationship in all of creation. Father, you've given us this beautiful union, and Father, I praise you. I pray for hearts throughout this room, hearts that have been broken, hearts that have been wounded. Father, I pray that you would bind them up, that you would heal them up. Father, I pray that if there are places where repentance is needed, where forgiveness is needed, where confession is needed, Father, that you would bring that about. Father, I pray that you would work a mighty work in our hearts and in our lives. But above all, Father, I pray that you would be glorified. pray that the words that we sing now would be pleasing to your ear, and that we would be honoring to your name. Father, we pray all these things in your son's precious name. Amen.